I come from down south where Elvis is king and Jesus is Lord. And that's what the band, one of my favorite bands, Over the Rhine, sings in their song, Last Night on Earth Again. And they capture one aspect of Southern culture in this song. The song recounts this time, uh, what happened once is they're performing this concert out in this field, and then they got interrupted. And Karen Burquist, the singer, uh, tells us about that. She says this, she sings this in the song. Down south, where Elvis is king and Jesus is Lord, we played our songs in a field where they found a Civil War sword. I was singing Amazing Grace and someone yelled, Free Bird! I strummed and smiled to myself and said, Honey, it stinks to be ignored. And that's a pretty good description of how it is in the South. At almost every single concert that you go to, someone will cry out for that classic Leonard Skinner song, Freebird. If there's a break in the set, someone always says, Freebird. I would not be surprised if someone has done that in church. I could totally see some redneck visiting church for the first time, and after a nice rendition of Amazing Grace, they shout out, Free Bird! Well, though I poke fun of my roots, I love the South. It's where I'm from, and it's where Elvis is king and Jesus is Lord. That's how it is in the South. In the South, where I'm from, People love Jesus and people love Elvis. In the South, people go to church and people go to Graceland. And that's how it was in ancient Israel, except they would say David is king and Yahweh is Lord. And so in both Psalm 20 and in Psalm 21, we're dealing with a situation where the people of God would have said something very similar to what Southerners say. They would say, David is king and Yahweh is Lord. And that's why we're looking at both Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 today, because they go together. They go together like Jesus and Elvis in the south. They go together like the church and Graceland. But how did Israel get to this place where they pledged both devotion to David and devotion to Yahweh? How did they get to this place where they had a king ruling over them? If you know your Bible, then you know the sad situation described in 1 Samuel chapter 8. The nation of Israel looked around and saw how that the other nations had kings ruling over them. And they looked around and not being satisfied that Yahweh, God, was their king. They said, we want to be like the other nations. We want a king who will go to battle and fight for us. And when they did this... They were rejecting Yahweh. They were rejecting God as their king. They wanted a human king who would go to battle and fight for them. And just to show you how sinful human beings are, even after the Lord warned them that this would be a disastrous plan, they still insisted on having a king, and so God gave them what they wanted. I mean, God came and said, this is disastrous. The king is going to do terrible things for you. And they said, yeah, yeah, we want the king. That's how sinful we are. 
Now, lest we throw these Israelites under the bus, we are just like them. We all want what we want when we want it. We all reject God as our king in many, many ways. And when we do this, we're just like Israel. We become kings and queens over our little kingdoms. But the good news of the gospel is this. Jesus came to set us free from our illusions, our fantasies, our bondage, and our enslavement to our little kingdoms of self. If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we are just like Israel. If we're honest with ourselves, we will admit that we live with the illusion of monarchy where we rule as king or queen of our little kingdom. It's how all of us live every day in every area of our lives. We live with this illusion of monarchy where we think we're in control. Not only do we think we're in control, we desperately want control. We want what we want when we want it. And when we do this, we begin thinking that we are the king or the queen and that everyone in our lives should do what we say and that we should always get our way. We should always get what we want. That's how all of us are in all of our relationships. We want our way. We demand our way in every situation and in every relationship because we're the king or the queen of our own little kingdom. And Jesus came to rescue us from that bondage. He came to set us free and to liberate us And so in order to understand Psalm 20 and Psalm 21 today, we have to understand how Israel got here to this point in her history, this point of having David as a king. And they got here with this formula. What the heart desires, the will chooses, and the mind justifies. What the heart desires wants and desires. The will then chooses and then the mind justifies. Their heart desired a king to rule over them because they were not satisfied with Yahweh. They wanted to be like the other nations and their will chose to have an earthly king even though God said this will not be good for you and then in their mind they justified what they wanted. What the heart desires The will chooses and then the mind justifies, always. And that's how Israel got to this point in Psalm 20 and Psalm 21. And that's how we all get to where we are when we start building our own little kingdoms of self. So as we approach the text today, we have to ask 
ask ourselves, what are these two psalms telling us about ourselves and what are they telling us about Jesus? That has to be our approach to these two psalms today. What is it that we have in common with the people here? How are we like them? How has sin ruined us like it has ruined them? In other words, how does the law expose us? How does the law expose our hearts here? And then we have to ask ourselves, what hope does the gospel offer us from this text? Where do we see Jesus as our redeemer, as our savior, as our king? That has to be our approach to the text today. And one of the reasons why is because we aren't like the Israelites and we don't have a king. So there's no correlation, there's no connection between us and them other than our sin and the fact that we all want to build up our own little kingdoms of self. There's no correlation here. We do not live in a society where we have a king that represents us. Now, we used to We used to have a king that we would pledge our allegiance to, but our ancestors decided that they wanted freedom, so they left England and then set up shop over here and ran off some of my descendants who are the Native American Indians. I have issues, but we won't go into that right now. We left England and came over here and set up shop, and then in some strange twist of life, we have remained oddly infatuated with England, haven't we? We left there so long ago, but we still have this fascination with the motherland. And here's the proof. I read this recently on Twitter. America spends eight years fighting for independence from the king, spends 200 plus years oddly fascinated with royal babies. There's something in us that wants a king But that gets twisted, and we end up wanting to be the king. We turn in on ourselves. And that's where these two psalms can help us. They will point us away from us and out to the king. And I think you know his name. His name is Jesus, and he came to rescue us. And he came to free us from our sin. And he came to rescue us and free us from our selfishness. And he came to rescue us and to free us from our infatuation with ourselves. And then to place us inside of his glorious kingdom. But here's what's happening in these psalms. In Psalm 20, it's the nation of Israel praying for their king, King David, that the Lord would bless him and to be gracious to him. And then in Psalm 21, David responds and he recounts how the Lord did, in fact, answer their prayers. And he tells us how Yahweh has blessed him and how Yahweh will come through for him. And so that's kind of the background here. So let's read both of these psalms back to back so you can see the structure and you can see why I think they need to go together. So we have Psalm 20. This is Israel blessing David, Israel praying for David. May the Lord, may Yahweh answer you in the day of trouble. May the name of the God of Jacob protect you. May he send you help from the sanctuary and give you support from Zion. May he remember all your offerings and regard with favor your burnt sacrifices. May he grant you your heart's desire and fulfill all your plans. May we shout for joy over your salvation and in the name of our God set up our banners. May the Lord fulfill all your petitions. 
Now I know that the Lord saves his anointed. He will answer him from his holy heaven with the saving might of his right hand. Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. They collapse and fall, but we rise and stand upright. O Lord, save the king. May he answer us when we call. And now Psalm 21, this is David's response. O Lord, O Yahweh, in your strength the king rejoices, and in your salvation he greatly exalts. You have given him his heart's desire and have not withheld the request of his lips. For you meet him with rich blessings. You set a crown of fine gold upon his head. He asked life of you. You gave it to him. Length of days forever and ever. His glory is great through your salvation. Splendor and majesty you bestow on him. For you make him most blessed forever. And you make him glad with the joy of your presence. For the king trusts in the Lord. And through the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. Your hand will find out all your enemies. Your right hand will find out those who hate you. You will make them as a blazing oven when you appear. The Lord will swallow them up in his wrath and fire will consume them. You will destroy their descendants from the earth and their offspring from among the children of man. Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed for you will put them to flight. You will aim at their faces with your bows. Be exalted, O Lord, in your strength. We will sing and praise your power. And so we have in Psalm 20 these prayers recorded for David and for his kingdom. And then in Psalm 21, we have David responding that God has indeed answered the prayers of Psalm 20. But what's really interesting, if you keep reading in the Psalms, is you read in Psalm 22, something has happened. Here in Psalm 21, David is confident. God, you're going to come through. God, you're faithful. And then you start in Psalm 22, and how does David begin? His confidence is gone. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me from the words of my groaning? And so in Psalm 21, you have David who is very, very confident that God's going to come through for him. And in the next Psalm, in Psalm 22, he's like, God, you're not answering my prayers. Where are you? Are you going to save me? Listen, Grace, that's where we make our bed. As Christians and believers, we make our bed between Psalm 21 and Psalm 22. One minute we are thinking, God, you are faithful. God, you are good. God, I trust your promises. And the next minute we're saying, God, where in the world are you? Welcome to Christianity. This this proves then what happens between Psalm 21 and 22. This proves that our own little kingdoms don't last That's why I call it the illusion of monarchy. We think we're kings and queens, but we're weak and we're sinful. We need help. And that's exactly why these Israelites are praying these blessings on David. Because David is the king of this mighty nation, but David still needs outside help. David is in trouble, Psalm 20, verse 1 says. David needs protection, Psalm 20, verse 1 says. David has to offer burnt offerings and sacrifices for his many sins. David has to look outside of himself even to survive as the king of a mighty nation. He needs the Lord's help. He needs the Lord's help not only to establish his kingdom, but to help him keep it secure 
And this is where Israel went wrong in demanding a king because all kings are fallible. And David was no exception. Israel needed someone beyond an earthly king. Why? Because David was a sinner, which is why they mentioned David offering burnt offerings in verse 3, because he was a sinner and they knew this. And we all know David's story, don't we? He broke at least half of the Ten Commandments in one episode of his life. The king, who is supposed to be the moral compass of the nation, broke at least half of the Ten Commandments in one single episode of his life, and he did not repent until he got caught. So there's this need for a different king, capital K, a better king. There's a need for a better king who would come that's seeping out of the passage. If you know Israel's history and you know David's history, you know there's this need for another king who would come that's just oozing out of this passage. But don't get me wrong. Israel is doing the right thing in praying for David's success in verses 1 through 5 of Psalm 20. Because the kings in the ancient Near East were seen as shepherds. The other kings in the nations that Israel looked to, their kings were looked to as shepherds. You're going to shepherd us as king. You're going to protect us. You're going to guide us. You're going to lead us. And that's what David was to the nation of Israel. As king, he was called to shepherd the nation And to be the moral compass of the nation. If David's heart followed Yahweh, then the hearts of the believers in the nation of Israel would follow Yahweh too. And if David's heart turned away from the Lord, then the nation would soon follow suit. So they are right. They are correct. They are being biblical to pray for David here because he was a sinner capable of doing the most heinous things which he eventually did do. And the Israelites were right to express their trust in the Lord and his promises. In verse 7 of Psalm 20, they cry out, some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. So they're saying, we don't, at this point in their life, we don't place our trust in military power, how many horses we can gather, how many chariots, swords, shields, No, we're trusting in Yahweh. We're trusting in the Lord. That's where they are in Psalm 20. But this isn't always the case with us, is it? Nor was it the case with Israel. We know that this place of confident trust won't last. We know it because we've read the Bible, and we know it because we know our own hearts We really want to believe that we don't trust in chariots and horses, but instead we trust in the name of the Lord our God, but we know from experience that we don't always do this, do we? We all have our favorite crutches. We all have our favorite props that we lean on. We all have moments where we say that we will trust in the name of the Lord our God, And they are genuine moments and they are legitimate moments and we need to have these moments. We all have these genuine, legitimate moments where we say, God, I'm only trusting in you. But we also know from experience that our trust fades quickly, doesn't it? 
And this was Israel's history from the beginning. This has been the struggle of the people of God since the Garden of Eden. We like to say we trust God, but we always come back putting and placing our trust in us, the kings and queens of our own little kingdoms. So Israel needed more than an earthly king because all of her earthly kings failed in some way. There were a few good kings, mostly bad, but they were all longing for, hungering for a king who would always trust the Lord, a king who would always be obedient. And ultimately, that is fulfilled in God's son, Jesus. Read those glorious words in scripture that, said, that say that, that he always pleased his father. That's what we were longing for, a king who would do that. And then the glorious news of the gospel is that God credits Jesus' trust in God the Father to us so that when we do blow it and fail to trust him, which we do all the time, we rehearse the gospel and remind ourselves that Jesus' perfect trust in God the Father has been credited to us, the people who repeatedly fail to trust God's promises. So all of Israel's kings failed in some degree. This was Israel's history. The people of God have always had leaders who were failures, and yet we try and turn these failures into heroes, especially children's Bibles and children's curriculum, although it's now bled over into the adult studies and the adult sermons. Let me ask you, when was the last time you read the book of Judges? Have you read the book of Judges lately? It reads like a script of the Jerry Springer show. And towards the end of the book, it starts to sound like one of the Saw horror movies. And in spite of that, we still try to turn it into a book about moralization, about how to be good. For crying out loud, Towards the end of the book of Judges, a guy cuts up his dead girlfriend and FedExes the parts of her body to the 12 tribes of Israel. The people in the book of Judges are messed up. And yet you crack open a kid's Bible and they paint a picture of these people as characters to emulate. These people are moral train wrecks. They have a moral compass, but it's always pointing in the wrong direction. But we put these people on pedestals because they seem larger to life than us. Like They do these wild and crazy things like Samson. He, He goes and he fights a lion and he rips him apart. And we try to say, be like Samson when we have Jesus in the Bible. We should be telling our kids, be like Jesus. And then they're told, you can't be like Jesus because you're a sinner. So they, they crumble under the weight of that. And then they say, Jesus credits that righteousness to you. Rejoice. That's what I want my kids to know. Not be a Samson. They're never going to face a lion. Especially after whatever's going on in Africa with Cecil the lion. <laughs> kids never going to face a lion to rip open. What they need to hear is that you can't live up to the standard. Jesus did for you and he gives you and clothes you with his righteousness and you are made right with a perfect God and you need to rest in that son. That'll get anybody through anything they face in life. But these larger than life characters are not the point of the stories. Jesus is the point. And David's not the point of the Psalms either. Jesus is. 
The Bible is full of sinners and train wrecks that God uses to carry out his will and to extend and advance and establish his kingdom on the earth. And that's what he's doing with David in Psalms 20 and 21. David is just a sinner. He's just a broken man who happened to be king. But we have this over-realized view of David, even here in Psalms 20 and 21. We try to put these people on pedestals and they always fall. They weren't meant to be the focus of the story. They're supposed to cause us to long for a savior, to long for a redeemer, to long for the king who would come and would not fail. But even though David failed, we still love him and we still put him on a pedestal, don't we? Evangelicals have a love affair with David. We're obsessed with David. We love him. We just can't get enough of him. We love him, don't we? Yes, he was one of Israel's greatest kings. Yes, he wrote a lot of the Psalms. Yes, he took Goliath down with a rock. What would every children's Bible do without David's story? But we all know he had secrets, didn't he? The fact of the matter is that we all have secrets. David had secrets, and he messed up big time. The difference between David and us is that David made the papers. TMZ was all over David's story. David was Solomon's dad who would eventually succeed him as king, but how David became Solomon's dad was not a romantic story. David should have been out on the battlefield fighting with his men and his warriors, but he was at home at the palace up on the rooftop, He saw Bathsheba taking a bath, and the Hebrew, actually it's called an offline structure in Hebrew, it goes out of its way to tell us that Bathsheba was cleansing herself of her monthly cycle. She was obeying the law of Leviticus. It's going out of its way to say, this woman is pure, this woman is right, and David walks up there, sees her, and after this abuse of power, brings her to his house, kidnaps her, and probably most likely rapes her. And after this abuse of power, She starts getting morning sickness. She grabs a pregnancy test. She saw the pink sign, plus sign. She sent word to David. And then David began hatching a plan to cover his tracks. He tried to get Uriah, Bathsheba's husband, drunk so that Uriah would go home and sleep with her because he's been away from her for a long time on the battlefield, but he got him drunk. He didn't go home and sleep with his wife. So what's he gonna do? Send Uriah to the front line so he gets killed. And that's what happened. Uriah died. And David literally thought he was getting away with murder. But God exposed David's sins through the prophet Nathan because Nathan came and told him a story and David said, you the man. And then Bathsheba's baby died and David married her and she eventually became pregnant again and they had Solomon who would become the king after David. It's all there in 2 Samuel chapter 11 and 12. And all of this mess that I just described to you involved our beloved David, the David that we all love. So when you read about David and all of his failures, you start longing for a king, capital K. You start longing for the perfect king, for the true king. And when you read the book of Judges with its repeated refrain of, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. When you read that, you start longing for a king, the perfect king, the true king, Jesus. And when you read Israel's history, you realize that your history is the same. 
Just like the nation of Israel and its long list of failures, our faith is up and down, isn't it? Our faith is here and there. Our faith and our trust in the Lord is all over the map, but God's steadfast love for sinners like us remains forever. His love is not moved by our failures. He is faithful even when we are fickle. And we see that in Psalm 20, verse 9. The good news of the gospel shines brightly in verse 9 of Psalm 20. Look there. O Lord, O Yahweh, save the king. May he answer us when we call. The Hebrew, because there's no commas and periods in Hebrew, the Hebrew could be worded this way. O Lord, save the king, that's Yahweh, may he answer us when we call. So I think they're crying out to Yahweh, the king, and they're saying, Yahweh, you are the king. Come and save us. I think they're asking Yahweh, the king, to save and to deliver them from themselves. And he has. God has sent his son, Jesus, the savior, Do you know what the name Jesus means? Do you know what the name Jesus means? Jesus means Yahweh saves. That's what the name Jesus means. Yahweh saves. So in Psalm 20, they're asking for Yahweh, the true king, to save them. And he answered that prayer by sending his son, Jesus Christ. And that's why Jesus came. He came to set us free from our illusions and our fantasies and our bondage and our enslavement to our little kingdoms of self. And listen, they're very, very little kingdoms. If you know me, listen, I worked hard this week building my own little kingdom. And if I told you the things that I wanted, you'd be like, really? Man, you need help. Just, just, can you not put that plate there on the floor? Can you clean up the bathroom? Can you do this? Can the weather be this way? Can this happen? All week long, I worked so hard and put all my energy into building my little kingdom. And when you compare it to God's kingdom, it's pathetic. My little kingdom is pathetic and puny. I fight for the dumbest things when you compare it to God's kingdom. And Jesus came to save me from that, and he came to save you from that. And that's why we always need to hear the law preached Because we always, every week, need to be exposed because all week long we spend time working on and advancing our own little kingdoms of self. We all have these props and crutches that we run to for support. Our lives seem to be experiments in not trusting the Lord, but instead trusting in our own gadgets, trusting in our own gifts, trusting in our own identities, our own props, our own crutches, our own little kingdoms. So we forever need the voice of the law because it exposes our hearts. It exposes who we are. We need to hear the condemning voice of the law because we all spend our energies building these little kingdoms. But the good news of the gospel is that Jesus came to set us free from our illusions of monarchy, to set us free from our fantasies of control, to set us free from our bondage to our sins, to set us free from our enslavement to our little kingdoms of self. If we're honest with ourselves this morning, we'll admit that we're just like Israel. 
If we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that we live with the illusion of monarchy where we reign as king or queen of our own little kingdom. It's how we all live every day in every single area of our lives. We live with this illusion of monarchy where we think we're in control and we desperately want control. We want what we want when we want it. And when we do this, we begin thinking that we are the king and everyone in our lives should do what we say and we should always get our way. We should always get what we want. We do this in a million different ways. Toilet paper is supposed to roll over the top. No, it's not. It's supposed to run over the top. It's supposed to roll the toothpaste from the bottom, not squeeze it. We all fight for little things. Do you see how pathetic we are? We fight over that. Do you guys fight over that kind of stuff? My wife and I don't fight over that kind of stuff, but I get bothered when things... When they do that to the toothpaste, that bothers me. Because in my kingdom, squeeze it up from the bottom. I'm just trying to be real with you. Some of you are like, I do not want to hang out with that guy. (laughs) He's so self-absorbed and wants all this crazy stuff. Well, That's how all of us are in all of our relationships. We want our way. We demand our way in every situation, every relationship, because we're the king or the queen of our own little kingdoms. And we even do this when we go to concerts. We do this when we go to hear a band play. They're the main attraction. They're the band that's on tour. We came to hear them play their music, and we still want our own way, just like I read in the lyrics earlier from the band Over the Rhine. They're playing in this big field down in the south, and someone interrupts them and says, I want to hear a different song. Down south, where Elvis is king and Jesus is Lord, we played our songs in a field where they found a Civil War sword. I was singing Amazing Grace, and someone yelled, Free Bird! I strummed and smiled to myself and said, Honey, it stinks to be ignored. Whoever this person was at this concert, they weren't happy with what they heard, so they wanted to control the song list by crying out for that classic Leonard Skinner song, Free Bird. They wanted to be king in that moment. They wanted control in that moment. And if we're honest with ourselves, we'll admit that deep down south, in the recesses of our hearts, this is what we say. Jesus is Lord, and I am king. Down south, in the deep caverns of our hearts, we say, Jesus is Lord, yes, and I am king. Deep down in the nooks and crannies of our hearts, we all want to be, we all live like, we all believe that we are the king. We are the king of our puny little kingdoms of self. And Jesus came to rescue us from that bondage. He came to free us, to liberate us, He is the king that our hearts have been aching for. He came to rescue us, to free us, to liberate us, and then to join us and unite us and link us up to his kingdom, the bigger and better story of his glory. You realize his kingdom is advancing in the earth so that all peoples of every nation, race, tribe, and tongue would come and fall down before him as the Savior and rejoice in his great love that he has for sinners. That's the biggest and greatest kingdom in the world conquering your enemies and turning them into people who love you. You compare that with what we want to do. I want to control the radio dial. I want to pick what songs we listen to. You compare my pathetic little kingdom of controlling the radio with Jesus. I'm going to come and live and die for these people who hate my guts. I'm going to turn them into my people. They'll love me and worship me forever. Compare the two. Do you see how ridiculous it is? When you put it like that, it's like, man, I need to be set free. The Israelites prayed for David 
And those prayers got answered in Psalm 21. The Israelites prayed for David. They prayed for their king. But here's the difference between us and them. We don't pray for our king. We don't pray for King Jesus. He prays for us. Hebrews 7.25 says he lives to make intercession for us. What a glorious king. He lives to pray and intercede on our behalf. And then he graciously invites us to join him on mission of setting prisoners free by praying for his kingdom to advance, by praying for his kingdom to come. It seems like I remember something that Jesus said in the Bible. This is how you pray. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done. But we typically don't ask for God's kingdom to come and we don't ask for his will to be done. Instead, we pray for our kingdom in our will. And these Psalms, in Psalm 20, they're praying for God's kingdom as mediated by David to come. But how often do we pray for our own little kingdoms? If you're like me all the time, I want my kingdom to advance. I want my way, and that's why I need to be rescued from me. Because this is how, to be real, and God knows this, I want to say, God, give me what I want, and then life will be great. I view him like a Santa Claus. Just give me what I want, and I'll be happy. And I think we all do this. And most of the things that I pray about, not to say that we can't pray because we're supposed to go to God, but most of the things that I pray about are driven by self if I'm really, really honest. I want this person to change, not so they become more like Christ, not so that they would honor and glorify Christ. I want them to change because they're a thorn in my flesh. See how we, how we turn it upside down? It's because we're trusting in us. In our kingdom. So let me ask you this morning, what are you putting your trust in? Is it the government? The government will let you down. Is it the church? The church will let you down. Is it a pastor? The pastor will let you down. I will let you down. Is it a presidential candidate? They will let you down. Only Jesus is trustworthy. Only Jesus makes campaign promises and follows through. We all want a king, and we all want to be king. And so maybe England has it right. Maybe the British model is best. You got one candidate, one family line, and not 16 candidates and growing over here, and one front runner over here in this party. We all want our candidate to win, but they can't deliver. President Obama, we should be praying for him. He offered hope and change, and even his strongest supporters now would say he didn't follow through. The reality is that no candidate can follow through. Republican, Democrat, Green Party, Tea Party, Libertarian, whatever it is. Only Jesus is trustworthy. Only Jesus keeps his promises. Listen, we all want a king. We all want a ruler. We all want a politician, capital P, who is honest and true, and that's Jesus. Our hearts, if your heart is like mine, I'll long to move away from just accepting the lesser of two evils. I want a king. King David failed, King Solomon failed, the kings of both Israel and Judah failed, the nation failed because they went into exile in Babylon, and the list goes on. Only Jesus will satisfy our hearts. John Bunyan said, the reason the saints have so many ups and downs in their travel toward heaven is that they forgot this one thing, God's free favor. 
And that's why David changes between Psalm 21 and Psalm 22 because he's forgotten God's grace. He forgot God's love. That's the reason why we have so many ups and downs on our way to heaven is because we forget God's free favor. We forget his unmerited favor, his grace, that we can't do anything to earn his love. That's why Israel failed. That's why David failed. That's why we fail because we forget God's free favor, his unmerited favor to undeserving sinners like us. We forget his grace, and so we have so many ups and downs. We forget his steadfast love, the steadfast love that David had confidence in in Psalm 21, verses 9 to 13. David saying, I'm trusting in your steadfast love. I know you're going to do this for me. But David eventually forgot that, and his trust went away, and he eventually did what he did with Bathsheba. And we forget his grace too. And so we have ups and downs. And that's why we need to hear more and more about God's love for us because it's God's steadfast love that keeps us secure even when we fail. And that's what David says in Psalm 21, verse seven. He says, for the king trusts in the Lord and through, or it could be causal in Hebrew, because of the steadfast love of the Most High, he shall not be moved. It's because of the Lord's love for David that he is not moved. David should be moved because he's fickle. He's all over the map. But it's because of God's steadfast love for him that he is not moved. And that's why we need to hear more preaching on God's love for us. Why we need to hear more preaching on his grace, his mercy, his trustworthiness, his promises. All of that is his character. That's who he is. Psalm 20, verse 7, but we trust in the name of the Lord our God. Anytime you see the word name in the Old Testament, it's talking about God's character, who he is. We need to hear more and more preaching about God, who he is, and what he has done for us, and not what we must do for him. We need to hear that God rejoices over us, that he sings over us. And what are the lyrics that God sings over us? Is it law? Is it do this to earn my love? No, it's all gospel. Zephaniah 3.17. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will quiet, he will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So God is singing over us all the time and we try to cut him off. God sings amazing grace over our lives and we cry out, free bird, play some Skinnered, man. That's what we do. God rejoices over us with singing. He wants to quiet us with his love, Zephaniah says. But for some reason, we're not content to sit and listen to him sing. We want to control the radio dial. We want to control the set list. We struggle to believe that he actually loves us. God is singing grace over our lives. And it looks like this. Your sins are forgiven. God is singing grace over our lives and it looks like this. There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. God is singing grace over our lives and it looks like this. I will remember your sins no more. God is singing grace over our lives and it says it is finished. And then we cry out for Freebird. And Freebird looks like this. Give me something to do. Let me earn your love. Or it looks like this. I'm guilty. I'm condemned. The shame and the guilt is so oppressive. There's no way you could ever love me. Let me cut you off as you sing of your unending grace because I can't receive that. So you know what God says to us when we cry out free bird like that? This is what God says to us. It stinks to be ignored. 
but I'm going to keep singing grace over your life. I'm going to keep singing it is finished. I'm going to keep singing your sins are forgiven. I'm going to keep singing I will remember your sins no more. God says, when you want to earn my love, I'm not going to listen. When you won't receive my love, I'm not going to listen. I'm going to come to you and wrap you up in my love. You see, Jesus refuses to budge. He's going to keep on loving you. He's going to keep singing over you. In spite of your ups and downs, he still holds on to you because he keeps covenant. That's what they mean in Psalm 20 when they describe the God of Jacob. He's a God of covenant. It's his hesed. Hebrew word, loyal love, steadfast love. It's his never giving up, never stopping, unbreaking always and forever love. That's the love that we forget when we start building our own little kingdoms. But it's his hesed, his steadfast love, his loyal love that holds on to us. It's his steadfast love that hunts us down when we run from him. It's his steadfast love that confronts us in our sin like God did with David. And it's his steadfast love that says the Lord has removed your sin from you. And it's his steadfast love that then recalibrates us for his kingdom. Perhaps we should end with these words out of Luke 1. Because Psalm 20 verse 9, O Lord, save. May the king answer us when he call, calls. When we call has been answered. Luke 1, and behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. Remember, it means Yahweh saves. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. He will be great. His kingdom will have no end. Let's pray and then we will sing how great is our God. Father, thank you for your amazing love, your amazing grace that sings over us. Forgive us because we want to cut you off. We don't want to believe your promises that they are so true, so unbelievably true. Forgive us of that, setting up our own little kingdoms, not trusting in you. Thank you for the perfect life and death of your son, which gets credited to us. We're here, God, to point to your son, to point to his kingdom, because our little kingdoms are crashing down all around us, but of his kingdom, there will be no end. Glorify your son in our lives today by the power of the Holy Spirit for our joy and for his glory, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.